Dennis Kinlaw was the president of Asbury College for 18 years, leading the school through the 1970 revival. In 1983, he founded the Francis Asbury Society to promote the message of scriptural holiness. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Our scripture this evening is found in the Gospel of John, chapter 12 of the Gospel of John. You will remember that this passage comes from the last week of our Lord's life, that week in Jerusalem before the cross, beginning with verse 20 of chapter 12. Now among those who went up to worship at the festival were some Greeks. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and said to him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew, then Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Very truly, I tell you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains just a single grain. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Those who love their life lose it. And those who hate their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, there will my servant be also. Whoever serves me, the Father will honor. Now my soul is troubled, and what should I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it is for this reason that I have come to this hour. Father, Glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it, and I will glorify it again. Will you pray with me? Our Father, we would not come to your word without asking you to give us your Holy Spirit to quicken our minds and our hearts, that we may both hear and understand, and that we may give you the grace, give you permission to translate truth into life within us, and we will give you praise in Christ's name. Amen. There are a lot of ironies in human history, but I suspect that the greatest irony in human history is the story of what the destiny of Jesus was when he came to the holy city. Because you are aware that uh, the temple... And the leadership of the temple in Jerusalem were there waiting for him to come. In fact, they'd been waiting, Israel had been waiting for 2,000 years. And from the day the temple was constructed by Solomon, those who led the temple said, the day will come when the Messiah will come, and this will be his house. And now the Messiah comes, and when he comes, we crucified him. Now, uh, why was it that we missed so desperately the one whom we were waiting and the one whom deep in our own spirits we knew we needed? Where Jesus was speaking to Peter, he said, Peter, you don't think the way God thinks, you think the way man thinks. And there is a radical difference between the way we think and the way God thinks. And the difference makes the difference between effectiveness, fruitfulness, 
eternal significance. Because if we think the way we think, we will think wrongly. But if we think the way he thinks, there will be eternal significance about the life that is lived under that kind of thinking. You see, they knew exactly how he should act when he came. And when he came, he did exactly the opposite of what they expected him to do. I'd like tonight to pick up four images or four pictures from the Gospel of John to illustrate that. They are the exact reverse of what the best the world had to offer expected when God came. And you have to remember that the temple does represent the best the world had to offer. They had a better understanding of human history. They had a better understanding of the nature of God. They had a better understanding of, of truth than anybody else in the world. But when Christ came, he didn't act the way they expected him to act. The first of these pictures or images is given in the first chapter. It is implicit there. It is not spelled out. But once it's mentioned, you can see that it is there. It is spelled out more specifically in the book of Revelation. You will remember in the first chapter it says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. That's a simple statement, but uh, it bears uh, examination. He, the eternal God in Christ, came unto his own, and his own received him not. But as many as did receive him, he gave to them power to become the very children of God. Now, in the book of Revelation, you will find that that thought is picked up and made very explicit. It's in that familiar verse in the third chapter in verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and open the door, I will come into him and will sup with him and he with me. And that's a picture which has caught the imagination of the body of Christ through the centuries. And you will find it illustrated again and again in our art. You uh, may have a picture in your own home. One of the most famous paintings in the world in terms of Christian history is Holman Hunt's The Light of the World. Many of you have seen it in St. Paul's in London or you've seen it in Keble College in Oxford. You will remember he stands in front of the door with a crown on his head, with a royal robe and a priestly robe on, because he is both our king and our priest. He is standing in front of a door with a lantern in his hand, and that lantern is casting its light across the doorway. And as it does, you see that greenery has grown up over the door, because it has been a long time since that door was opened. And there the Christ stands, knocking. The king knocks. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that for decades. I suspect I was 50-some years of age before the irony of that came home to me. Because do you know the one thing a king never does? The one thing a king never does is knock on anybody's door. I think the first time that really came home to me was... Uh, during the presidency of Ronald Reagan, you will remember we spoke of that as a royal presidency. And I thought, I wonder how many doors Ronald Reagan as the president's ever knocked on. We pay all sorts of people to go in front of him and see that those doors are wide open because political figures of power cannot be in a position of rejection. 
I thought, I suspect if Ronald Reagan's knocked on anybody's door, and I think it would be applicable to Bill Clinton. I suspect if Bill Clinton's knocked on anybody's door in the last three years, it was probably Hillary's, because there's nobody else who really has the right to say no to him in our culture and in our society. Because, you see, kings cannot be in a position of rejection. Knocking is not a sign of power. Knocking is a sign that the power is on the other side of the door. And it is such that even the one knocking, even if he's a king, can be rejected. You know, there's an interesting story of medieval history. Back in the 11th century, there was an emperor by the name of Henry. And there was a pope by the name of Gregory. And Gregory and Henry squared off to see who was going to have control in the secular realm. Henry said the Pope could have it in the spiritual realm, but the uh, Emperor, the Holy Roman Emperor, ought to have it in the political and in the civil area. And so they squared off. And so the Pope just simply excommunicated Henry. And after he had excommunicated Henry, Henry found that his support began to slip away. And so Henry made his way south into Italy to Canossa, the northern residence of the Pope, and stood, we are told, barefooted in the snow and bareheaded for three days, knocking on the Pope's door, asking for absolution. Now, isn't it interesting? Knocking is not a sign of power, as we understand power. You see, the Jews wanted someone to come who could get rid of the Romans. They were expecting a king who was going to establish a kingdom, and they would have their positions of authority and power within it. And here is a king who comes knocking. You know, uh, I've never seen Holman Hunt's painting but twice. First time I saw it was in 19... Yeah, I almost said 1755. 1955. I'm not quite that old. But uh, 1955. It's a magnificent thing. If you haven't seen it, if you ever go to London, you ought to go to St. Paul's and see it. The next time I saw it was 1974, 19 years later. And as I stood there 19 years later and looked at that magnificent painting, the thought went through my head, for heaven's sakes, he's still knocking. How long will he knock? How long will God knock at your heart and my heart? And when he knocks, it is not a sign of power. It is a sign that he's given it to us, and he will let us dispose of him as we will. And that's not the kind of Messiah they were looking for. And so they said, this can't be he. Now, the second picture comes in the beginning of this last week of his life. It begins on Palm Sunday. You will remember he had had three years of remarkable ministry around Palestine. He had healed the sick. He had raised the dead, actually, because just a few days before this, he had resurrected Lazarus, and the whole countryside was aware of the story of Lazarus. The whole city of Jerusalem was alive with the story. There's a man out there who was four days dead, and this fellow Jesus called him by name, and he came walking, marching forward. Now, uh, on Palm Sunday, they said he'll certainly come into the city today because this is the first day of the week. 
for the first day of the festival. And so they were out to meet him. And they pulled the palms from the branches from the palms, took their cloaks off, and when he came in riding into the city, you will remember they cast them in front of him, and they cried out, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is the king, the king that comes in the name of the Lord, the one we've waited for for 2,000 years. He is now here. They were ready to crown him king. Now again, it's interesting how much we miss and how little we see in the scriptures because we now have heard the story so much that the radical character of it, it does not break through to us. I read that for years before I realized how radical it was. You will remember that when he got ready to come into the city, he turned to his disciples and said, Go into the city and you'll find a donkey in its fold and bring them to me. And Jesus climbed on a donkey and rode into the city. Now, somewhere early in my life, I read a commentary that said they had royal donkeys in that part of the world in those days. Now, I don't believe that for a minute. No Egyptian pharaoh ever rode on a donkey. No Roman emperor ever rode on a donkey. No Roman general ever rode on a donkey. Have you ever seen a man ride on a donkey? If you've never seen a man ride on a donkey... You really don't understand, but a man looks foolish riding on a donkey because he, his legs go like this and he's bouncing. The only person that ever rides a donkey in the Rose Bowl parade is a clown. But do you know what I missed for many years? You remember that was a pro fulfillment of a prophecy because Zechariah had said, Behold, your king comes to you meekly, riding upon a donkey and upon its foal. But do you know how many decades I read that chapter without noting the next verse? The next verse explains it. It says, He will take away the horse and the chariot from his city. Because, you see, the horse is a symbol biblically of worldly power and authority. And the chariot is too. Because, you see, in that world they were the equivalent of tanks or F-17 jets, this kind of thing. And they were a symbol of uh, position, and grace, and charm, and all that went to it. Now, you know, that ought to mean more to you and to me than to most congregations, because you and I live in Kentucky, and we live in a horse state. I love those horse farms around Lexington. They're so magnificent, and those beautiful four-legged creatures. Do you know that in 1986 they sold a yearling in Lexington in the annual sales? Never on a step in a race they sold one for $8.4 million. And in 1987 they sold a yearling, never on a step in a race, for $10.2 million. And in 1988 they sold one for $12.5 million. Now, that was back, you see, in Reagan's days, and that's when I was thinking about this royalty stuff. And I thought, I wonder what the going price of donkeys is in Lexington. So I checked and I found that you could get a good donkey for between 40 and $65. Now, are you going to tell me there's no theology in there? There is a massive amount of theology in that. When he came, he did not come to bring a horse kingdom. He came to bring a donkey kingdom. 
because a donkey is a symbol of service and helpfulness and lowliness and meekness and humility. You remember that Jesus said it wasn't the powerful that would, that would inherit the earth, it would be the meek. And he dramatized it that day. Now, the third picture comes on Thursday evening. And when I mention that, you immediately know what it is. You will remember that he gathered his disciples, these that had been with him for now three to three and a half years. They knew him better than anybody else in the world, and they loved him deeply. But they still did not think the way he thought. I don't know about you, but the longer I live, the more I think that American Christendom fits those disciples in that upper room extremely well and fits those Jews in Jerusalem on Palm Sunday extremely well. We're interested in appearances, and we're interested in position, and we're interested in power. And he says, no, that's not the way. There is another way. And he takes a basin, and he gets down on his knees, and he begins to wash the feet of his own disciples. Now, kneeling is a religious posture. If you will go through human history, you will find that kneeling is the natural position for a worshiper before his God. And now Peter sees the eternal Son of God get down on his knees in front of him. And Peter says, here we go again, Lord. You never have learned how you're supposed to act. We're the ones who are supposed to wash your feet, not you wash ours. You will never wash my feet. And he knew that he was being very rightly religious when he said that. And Jesus looked at him and said, and we get a repetition of what happened at Caesarea Philippi. Peter, you don't think the way God thinks. You think the way the world thinks, and if I can't wash your feet, you can't have any part in me. Now, can you imagine the trauma in Peter's soul? Because here is a man that desperately loved the one who was kneeling in front of him. He left his family. He left his wife. He had left his home. He had left his job. He had left everything for three years to follow this guy around because he loved him. And now he is saying, you don't belong to kneel to me, I belong to kneel to you. And Jesus says, Peter, the God you worship is not the real one. The God you worship does not exist. You know, William Temple said, if the... If you have a wrong concept of God, the more religion you get, the more dangerous you are to yourself and to others. There's no question about it. Look at all the tragedies in human history based on religious belief. If your concept of God is wrong, the more religion you get, the more dangerous you are to yourself and to others. And now Jesus says, the God you worship, Peter, and imagine, doesn't exist because the God who is can climb down off his throne and go all the way to the depths of doing the parts you ought to do and kneel and wash your feet.
Now, the fourth picture in John is found on the next day. Because, you see, uh, they knew there would be a culmination of his life. But what they were looking for is a culmination of his life as a coronation and a throne. And what they get instead of a throne is a cross. Now, if kneeling is a proper religious posture, sacrifice is at the very essence of religion. It doesn't matter where you go or what the religion is. At its very heart, you will find that sacrifice is there. You can quickly, in your mind, recall a thousand instances of that in human history and in the various religions of the world. To worship means to sacrifice. So now we have an altar. It's not built like a normal altar. It's a cross. And we have a sacrifice. And it's not a gift from the worshiper to the worshiper. It is a gift from the worshipped to the worshiper. It is not a case where we give something to God to get his approval and his blessing. It is a case where God gives himself to us, gives himself for us, that we might be redeemed. Now, I defy you to find anywhere in all the religious literature of the world another case of that. Because, you see, the gods that we imagine are not the real ones. And the eternal Son of God came to break the darkness in our minds and to let us see what the real God and Redeemer is. Now, I remember when I was working on this, I uh, first beginning to put these pieces together. I preached it one day to a bunch of preachers. There was an old retired preacher in the crowd who came up to me afterwards and looked at me in deep distress. And he said, Kenlaw, for God's sake, get him off that donkey. <laughs> and you know, I sensed something of the trauma in his soul. I found some sympathy within me for it. Well, I kept on reading, so I sat down and read the book of Revelation. I was fascinated to find that in the book of Revelation... You get four images, too. But it's interesting that there are these four in John reversed. Because in the book of Revelation, he doesn't come knocking. He comes like lightning. Brilliant, flashing lightning. And when lightning comes, it doesn't ask permission to get in. There is nothing that can stop it. may deflect it, but there is nothing that can stop it. And when he comes, you can't even deflect him. He will be simultaneously, universally present to every person that exists. And there will be no barrier, no door that can shut him out. He will breach them all. And we will be face to face with the eternal God. Now, when he comes the second time, it's interesting that he doesn't come on a donkey. Because if you read the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation, you'll find he comes on a great white horse. He has a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth, and the armies of heaven follow him.
and he has written across his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. And he comes exactly the way the temple wanted him to come the first time. So he doesn't come on a donkey. He doesn't come in meekness. He comes in power, as we understand power. When he comes the second time, you'll remember he doesn't come at our feet. Read the book of Revelation and you'll find that the four and twenty elders are on their faces casting their crowns before him as the heavenly creatures sing his adoration and his praise. You will find that the chief men, the mighty men, the captains of the earth, the centers of power, the symbols of power in our world will be on their faces pleading for the Himalayas to cover them up and hide them from the face of the Lamb that sits upon the throne. And when he comes the second time, he doesn't come on a cross. He comes the way they hoped he would come. He comes on a great white throne. So I thought, isn't that interesting, the contrast between how he came and how they wanted him to come and how he's coming the second time? It's interesting, most of us would like him to come the second time the way he came the first time. But now, why the difference in the coming? It suddenly dawned on me. Do you know that when he comes the second time, there won't be a sin forgiven? There won't be a broken relationship restored? There won't be a single soul saved when that lightning flash appears? You know what the last chapter of the book of Revelation says? The word will be, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. He that is filthy, let him be filthy still. He that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. When he comes the way we wanted him to come, it will be simply to fix us forever the way we are. When he came the way we didn't want him, there was something in that that had the power to transform us into what we ought to be. It's that first coming that is redemptive, not the second coming. And suddenly it began to come home to me. Did you know that not even God, now I hesitated a long time to say this because it sounds heretical. I don't want to be a heretic. <laughs> But let me say it, that not even God can save by power. The only way that the God of Scripture saves is by self-sacrifice. Now, you know, at times I've recoiled from that because I thought it was the Father sacrificing the Son for our redemption. But then I became a father. And do you know that the book of John says that the one who organized and orchestrated this whole thing was not the Son? It wasn't the case of the Son saying, Father, one of us has got to do something to save those people down here. It was the Eternal Father who said, what do we do? 
I went through the Gospel of John with that in mind. There's a very interesting expression in the Greek. You know, their syntax is different, their word order. Forty times the word sent is used in the Gospel of John, and most of the references are about the Father sending Jesus. Jesus is the sent one. There's one very poignant expression in the Greek. It's where Jesus speaks about his Father. He says, the sending me Father. All pempsos me pater, the sending me Father. And suddenly it dawned on me. The main character in the Gospel of John is not Jesus. And the main character on Good Friday is not the one on the central cross. It's the Eternal Father who gives the best thing he's got. One he loves more than he loves himself. And God gives himself his best so we can be redeemed. Now, you know, uh, that came home to me in a special way in reading through the book of Revelation, looking for this. Do you remember the fourth chapter of the book of Revelation? The door opens in heaven, and the evangelist looks in, and there's the very throne of God. All the creatures are bowing and worshiping, and in the hands of the one who sits on the throne there is a book. It is sealed with seven seals. And it is the future. The evangelist's future, your future, my future, the world's future. And the evangelist says, who is worthy to break the seals and open the book, to unroll history? And they search through heaven, they search through the earth, they search under the earth, and there's no one worthy to open the book. And so the apostle weeps, and as he weeps, the heavenly creature says, Save your apostolic tears. There is one worthy to open the book. The Lion of the tribe of Judah. Now, do you know what the Lion of the tribe of Judah was? He was a rampant lion, standing on his hind feet, with his four paws extended and his claws out, ready to fall on his foe and take care of the enemy. And so John turns and looks for the Lion of the tribe of Judah. And when he turns to see the Lion of the tribe of Judah, what he sees, standing in the middle of the throne, at the center of all ultimate authority, is the Lamb that was slain from the foundations of the world. You know the phrase, Lion of the tribe of Judah, never occurs in the book of Revelation again? And between 27 and 30 times, depending on which Greek text you use, the Lamb appears. You know who's going to reign ultimately? It's not a lion. It's a lamb. So you see, they missed him because the one they were looking for didn't come the way they expected him to come. Now, how does that bear upon what we're talking about in this series? You see, when sin came into the world, it darkened our understanding as well as perverted our hearts, our affections, and trapped our wills. And we've got our own notions of what is good and what is right. 
And so we say, we know how to do it. Just let us do it. And we always mess it up. You see, I become a Christian. God calls me to preach. I join the conference. I'm ordained. And I say, now God, if you'll just give me that big pulpit, I can do all sorts of things for you. I read the biography of Pope John Paul recently. I was interested that when the war broke out, he had just finished university. To save his skin, the bishop saw to it that he got an appointment to work in a stone quarry. So for four years, he worked as a worker in a stone quarry. As soon as the war was over with, they sent him to the university and he finished his Ph.D. And as soon as he finished his Ph.D., they sent him to the Vatican for 18 months. He built the relationships he would need later. And then they sent him back to Poland. And they sent him to a small parish so far in the mountains that he had to walk to get to his preaching appointment. All of his friends said, what'd you do to anger the bishop? But after he had spent his term in that out-of-the-way place, then he began to be the figure that he is today. Now, you know, what we think may be a burial, in God's eyes, may be the direct way to a place of significance. Because around the Catholic world, he is known as a worker and as a parish priest. While most of the popes have been Vatican bureaucrats with whom the ordinary Catholic had no identification. Now, I'm not a Roman Catholic, but I just thought that's an interesting way to prepare a man for the highest post in the church. Well, there's something very analogous in the church. You know, uh, the kingdom is not built this way, it is built this way. And our thinking is, just let me get up and get me let guy hire and get what I want. It's nice up here and the perquisites are good and everything is. But God's way is this way. And so God steps down off the throne and goes to the bottom and the redemption starts from the bottom up. Now, I've come to believe that biblically there is nothing redemptive except self-sacrifice. If the only way God can be redemptive is by sacrifice, how do you expect to be redemptive? Do you want your life to count? Do you want your life to be fruitful? Do you notice what Jesus said? Except a corn of wheat fall into the ground and die. Die to what? Its own will. Its own desires. Its own ambitions. Die to all of that and say, God, bury me where you please. Plant me where you want. Do with me what you will. Take my hands off my life, as 
So he said the other night, Get me free from my contaminating touch, and then take me and place me where you will. Now, the thing about it is, the reason we talk about a deeper experience is because after you become a Christian, you find there's still a desire within you to decide where God plants you. Have a little to do with what God does with you. <laughs> we have that uh, self-interest within us that the New Testament speaks of as carnal or fleshly. And so Jesus says, if it's true for me, it has to be true for you too. You've got to come to the place where you are like that corn of wheat and willing to be buried and die to yourself and your own interests in your own ways. And then... I can make you fruitful. Now, uh, that takes me back to those disciples. We talked the other night about the disciples in Mark 9 and 10. They had already learned that Jesus was the Christ, and they believed in him. Three of them stood on the Mount of Transfiguration and heard God speak from heaven and say, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. And faith turned into knowledge. Now they know that Jesus is the Christ. And they come down from the top of the mountain, and then they begin a discussion. And the discussion about is about, what's my position going to be in the kingdom? And they began arguing over who would have preference. You see, that's not sacrifice. The person who counts is the person who says, God, you can take me and spend me where you please. And God looks down with great excitement and says, I can get something of eternal worth out of that life. Have you come to the place where you've looked at him and said, God, I don't want my hands on my life. You're sovereign Lord. You can run my life. I want to take my hands off. And I want to be able to go the way that Christ went. It's a way that the world looks upon his weakness. You know, the most threatening thing in the world for you and me is to lose control. <laughs> the one thing we want in life more than anything else is to be in control of our circumstances, our position, and our situation. And the first thing he asks of his disciples, the believer is, Will you give up control? And we're terrified. And then we begin to see the sterility of anything other than total surrender. And we begin to yearn to be his totally and lose control, ours for his. Because it's safe to trust him. It's even right to love him. We bow our heads together. Father, we give you thanks for your word. Not just the written word, the living word. The eternal Son of God, your Son, Father, who came and gave himself for us and showed us the way. We want to think the way you think. We want to have the mind which was in Christ Jesus. Because the only way we can walk as you walked, the way you walked, is to have the mind which you had. 
save us from that self-interest that contaminates and defiles and hinders your spirit at work in our lives. And let us look up to you and say, God, get my hands off my life, and then you take me. Spend me as you will. Just do it for your glory, and I will rejoice. In Jesus' name, amen.